This is World to Win, bringing you the latest news and analysis from a socialist perspective. Welcome back, everyone, to World to Win. Make sure if you're not subscribed to our channel, you do that um, and like this video after you watch it. Comment on it. Um, let us know what you what, what you think, and also let us know you know some things that you want to see us talk about on the show. We love, love feedback from um, our viewers. So I'm so excited this week I get to see Yara. Yara, I talked last week with Dara because he was on because you weren't here. And I was saying how I was so excited uh, for the International Socialist Alternative Summer School so I could finally meet you and then I wasn't able to go. I know, I was devastated. You know, I think uh, it's been so long that we've been chatting online. Uh, in, in this like well to win capacity and we still haven't met it's been like two years now so we have to meet next year I don't care I don't care what the, the circumstances are I know a whole pandemic but anyways let's get into it we have two great guests today um, one repeat guest I think Megan's the first time on our show although you may have seen her on TikTok she's you know blown through socialist alternative TikTok, uh, gone very viral. Um, and you may have seen her at COP26. I believe she was there as well. Um, so Megan, we have from Minneapolis, um, from our U.S. Uh, socialist alternative. How are you, Megan? What, what, what's new with you? Good. Um, not much. They, I was just doing readings for the U.S. summer school that's coming up. Um, I'm not going, uh, which is a huge bummer, similar to you, but we got the agenda and all of the readings, so I've been plowing through those. Yeah. Nice, nice. Always good to catch up on your reading. And we have Connor, who's been on our show before, but welcome back, Connor. Um, Connor's from the UK. What, what's new with you? Yeah, it's good to be back. Um, what's new? Well, I mean, it's kind of been out of the frying pan and into the fire after the ISA summer school. We've uh, been thrown into a huge wave of uh, historic kind of strike action, industrial disputes in the UK um, and uh, been kind of getting involved in that, trying to follow how much is going on because every day there's uh, a new uh, a new development. It's very exciting. That is exciting. And you may recognize Connor's uh, voice from our podcast, Revolutionary Ideas. So after you listen uh, to this podcast, you know, hop on over there and check out some of those episodes. Yeah, it's so exciting to be here finally again and kind of chat about, I think, one of the most important topics as well uh, with uh, everyone here, which is the climate. We've done a few episodes before about the climate, which you can check out uh, on our channel. And obviously, don't forget to subscribe and also press the bell button to be notified when we have a, a new episode uh, coming out. But this time, we are in kind of like a huge kind of hotspot, pardon the pun, uh, to do with climate. And we've seen heat waves, we've seen floods, we've seen fires, we've seen droughts, everything, for, like, any kind of natural disaster has been happening in the past uh, in the past few months. It's actually terrifying to wake up every morning and see something crazy happening somewhere else around the world. Uh, and obviously, kind of come together with the war in Ukraine and the rising uh, cost of living and also energy prices, it's, it's kind of it's, it's seemingly kind of doom and gloom completely for working class people. Uh, especially when it comes to trying to heat the houses or cool down the houses. So it's really exciting to uh, be kind of talking about it and kind of 
thinking about, first of all, why we're experiencing all of these things now, but also how can we actually have an effective combat against it? Um, and, you know, I think it's it's really worrying for everyone to see what's happening. And we're seeing in Madagascar, uh, uh, the, the, the country is facing what the UN calls the, the world's first climate change famine, which is terrifying. And in China, millions have faced power cuts as part of a trail of destruction left by an ongoing heat wave. And heat waves, we don't have to uh, start mentioning what uh, everyone is seeing around across Europe. We're seeing uh, in, like the, the record-breaking heat waves uh, uh, across the continent, especially in the Mediterranean regions. Uh, and uh, we're seeing droughts and wildfires uh, in France. It's been uh, the worst drought on record. Generally, according to the EU in Europe, it's been the uh, the worst drought in 500 years. Um, we've seen even in Italy, we've seen rivers dry up so much that like old unexploded bombs from the Second World War are kind of coming out uh, from the surface, which is uh, quite terrifying. But obviously, it's not just about Europe and it's not just about the wildfires that we're seeing in Australia and then in, 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 uh, in the US as well. Uh, we're also seeing record break breaking temperatures in uh, the Indian Peninsula, where uh, March was the hottest uh, month on record ever. Uh, since record began uh, over 100 years ago. And then in May was the record-breaking temperature ever of 49 Celsius. Uh, the Middle East and North Africa, obviously, one of the hotspots of uh, climate change. Uh, we're seeing uh, them uh, uh, heat up at double the rate of uh, the rest of the globe. Uh, and our the temperatures are expected to reach 4 degrees warmer compared with the 1.5 degrees uh, that scientists have prescribed to save humanity. Uh, and then we've got uh, Southeast Asia with uh, with what's called rain bombs that are going up and up. Uh, we've seen Africa uh, uh, with droughts and wildfires uh, as well. So it's really insane uh, what's happening and really frightening as well. Well, like thinking about what we can expect in the next few years. Yeah, I mean, here in the U.S., Yara, it's the same thing. Um, you know, the rivers are drying up. Uh, so badly that even in I think it was Texas they saw like newly discovered dinosaur footprints like that's how uh, much the water has has you know uh, uh, dried away and you know in Colorado in the western part of the U.S. Um, the Colorado River which is the drinking source for seven states including California is at its lowest levels like ever. Um, so it's a huge issue. I know, you know, for me on the East Coast, we've had over 100 degrees um, for weeks and weeks. It's terrible, especially working in it. Um, it's just awful. But Connor, can you get into a little bit more of the specifics of what it's been like during this heat wave in um, Europe and, you know, in England where you live? Yeah, well, uh, specifically, it's been very hot. Um, but I mean, you know, it's the it's the hottest temperatures we've ever had in Britain. Uh, over 40 degrees. Um, and that's just, you know, it's temperatures that our infrastructure in the UK is, is not built for, right? So, uh, for instance, the railway tracks, there were lots of stories about these buckling in the heat as they expand, um, you know, basically sitting there uh, baking out in the sun, uh, which caused big disruption to our transport network. In London, actually, some of the train tracks even caught fire and there were fires on the train tracks. Um, and I think that that, you know, that shows that the whether it's the trains, but also other things as well, 
are not prepared for these kinds of huge heat waves that we're now starting to experience more and more regularly. Uh, I mean, just to give some other examples, like in London, one of the one of the airports, uh, the runway melted, so they had to suspend all flights. Um, and there was, uh, again, uh, to give another example from London, just because that's where I'm based at the moment, um, there were there were dozens of fires. It was the busiest day for the London Fire Brigade since the Second World War. Um, and I think, you know, that's that shows the scale of this, um, just how how extreme these these kinds of heat waves actually are. Uh, beyond just you know the the temperatures themselves, which don't get me wrong, are still incredibly dangerous all on their own. So you know it's hard to give a, a clear figure. There's uh, there's a lot of uh, variance in uh, in some of the reporting, but uh, figures for the amount of like excess deaths during that heat wave and during the heat waves over the last few months have been in excess of like a thousand and. Uh, you know, that's regardless of, um, you know, the other disruption that's been caused, the other damage and so on. Yeah, you know, obviously I'm an immigrant here in Britain uh, from the Middle East. So when they said, oh, it's going to be 40 degrees, I was like, ah, OK, can do it. But like the heat here is different because, like you said, the infrastructure is so like unequipped to deal with it. And it's actually terrifying to see what you just described, like the, the, the country just shutting down because of something that we know is going to be an ordinary recurrence now. Every year seems to have the new, you know, record-breaking temperatures. Every year seems to be chaos to do with climate change, whether it's snow in the middle of spring or heat waves that are continuous for two months uh, in a country that usually doesn't see degrees over 20 degrees Celsius. Um, uh, uh, for more than a couple of days a year. Um, but I was wondering, Megan, can you tell us a little bit about how that compares to the US and also the rest of the world uh, in terms of kind of uh, the experience of this summer slash winter in the, in the uh, Southern Hemisphere? Yeah, while what happened in the UK was historic and scary, the entire like Northern Hemisphere, I think, has been um, touched by the extreme heat we've had this summer. And yeah, when Connor was saying 40 degrees, I was like, shoot, that sounds normal for me. Um, 40 degrees Celsius, uh, the, the little conversion, is like 104 degrees Fahrenheit. I feel like when you say it in Fahrenheit, it sounds a little more serious. Um, uh, but yeah, I think um, what Yara was talking about was, yeah, all across Europe, there was I think over a thousand um, heat-related deaths in Portugal and Spain. We had thousands of people f like fleeing wildfires in France, which I didn't even know they had wildfires in France. Uh, you had mentioned, yeah, just all of the crops and the drought um, that has basically touched the African continent, but um, especially in Tunisia. And then in Shanghai, officials issued what was like a, a red alert, and that's when temperatures hit 40 degrees Celsius or about 104 Fahrenheit. And only 17 red alerts have been issued since the late 1800s, but three of those have been issued so far in this one summer alone, in summer 2022. So uh, I think that just really speaks to how our extreme weather events are not only just increasing in severity, but also in how often they happen. Um, in the US specifically, yeah, around 60 million Americans in at least 16 states dealt with temperatures above um, 100 degrees Fahrenheit, so 38 Celsius, uh, the last week of July, and then more than 100 million people were under heat alerts 
And um, I know in India and Pakistan, they had a deadly heat wave that analysts had said was 30 times more likely because of climate change. So it unfortunately means it's likely to happen again. So I think these concurrent heat waves that we're seeing across the world at the same time are becoming more common as we're seeing global temperatures rise. Um, and we have to seriously consider what those extreme weather temperatures and events mean for people experiencing homelessness or the elderly or just working in poor people the world over. There are millions of people in areas of the world where like air conditioning is just not a reality either for economic reasons or just because their area never needed it in the first place. Um, then you have the risk of heat stroke and death increases as these warm seasons get longer and the pressure that that would put on healthcare systems. Um, the US healthcare system is broken, so uh, that's it's not a good sign. And then rebuilding homes taken out by fires and floods is a luxury many don't have. So capitalism, I think, has truly made mass climate casualties a reality and it's not some far off thing that we have to be worried about in the future. Yeah, actually, um, you mentioned uh, droughts as well, Megan, and uh, I think that that's one of the ways that we're seeing the lasting effects now uh, of this heat wave, because the heat wave itself, uh, at least the worst of it, has uh, kind of passed, but we're still seeing, you know, floods and the predictions of floods going well into the autumn in the UK and other parts of Europe, for instance, um, because of the ground being so parched that it actually, you know, doesn't absorb water as quickly as it would. So even now that it, you know, it has rained a little bit, the ground has not taken that water in. We've seen floods. Um, and this is, you know, this is the reality. This is, you know, it's the, it's not the case that you just have this kind of spike in temperatures and then things go back to normal. It upsets, uh, it upsets the kind of, uh, natural um uh cycles of uh of you know weather of uh the water cycle and all of these things in a much more kind of protracted way as well and i think that that's one of the things that we're going to be seeing more of continuing to have to discuss unfortunately and deal with the effects of too yeah there were floods in dallas i think this week where the like news headline said like once in a thousand year flood and i feel like we're getting those all the time now. It does not feel like once every thousand years. Yeah, I hear you, Megan. I mean, you know, flooding, especially in the U.S., is something that we see during hurricane season. And I was just reading that in New Orleans, they're trying to, um, you know, protect themselves from the expectant uh, floods that will come from hurricane season. And, you know, the state government is withholding money from the city, you know, over the question of abortion. And it's just like, how is protecting the city from superstorms, you know, that are exacerbated by climate change? What does that have to do with access to reproductive health care? But I think it's a really good example of how, you know, um, uh, counterintuitive this system is and how it can't help, uh, you know, uh, deal with these types of disasters. And the system I mean is capitalism. And a lot of times when we hear these um, uh, experts talk about climate change and these scientists talk about climate change, they talk about it being, you know, a human made phenomena. And more and more people are, are um, agreeing with this, although, you know, there's still people on the far right that like to deny it, you know, more and more people are agreeing with this. Um, but why would you say, you know, as a, a socialist that it is capitalism itself, it's not, you know, the individual human, but capitalism itself that's causing the problem? How would you talk about that? 
I think, to put it simply, capitalism, like you're saying, is a system that is driven by profit. It's not driven by the needs of the planet or the people living in it. Um, all of these carbon emissions, massive destruction, just the extreme weather is something that only capitalism could produce uh, in the way that it has on such a massive scale. While so many of us have been told we're going to save the earth by like drinking out of a paper straw and recycling cans, which are good things. We shouldn't like stop doing those. Uh, just 100 companies are responsible for 70% of the world's global emit like greenhouse gas emissions. That is, I think, a pretty damning judgment on capitalism as a system and something that I think fans of capitalism would not admit. But capitalism is a really messy and slow system that doesn't match up with our needs at all. If science is saying public transit is a solution we can use that doesn't have a lot of greenhouse gas emissions, but then our capitalist parties are introducing climate bills that are entirely focused on cars, like what is what is that? Uh, when we talk about like death and destruction happening over a single summer here on earth, but then oil, you know, in the ground still exists. The fossil fuel industry does not care what we say. They're going to be putting their profits over over the earth every single time. And that's just how capitalism how capitalism operates. That's not going to change even if it's green capitalism. Yeah, and you know, I think we're also seeing how the implications of generally the capitalist crisis, the economy, the war in Ukraine, everything together is Im impacting and impacted by the climate crisis as well. Like uh, in Britain, I saw this uh, really crazy interview with one of the uh, actually main candidates for the uh, ruling party, the the, the Tory party's um, like a, a, a leadership. Uh, her name is uh, Liz Truss. She was uh, she was asked directly because of all the like you know the. The, 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 the anger that people have about the rising cost of living and especially rising energy uh, energy uh, prices, uh, what she was going to do. And she said to, uh, she's going to increase fracking and drilling in the North Sea. So it's just insane to see how the system can't deal with, a cl with climate crisis, but also is exasperating it, uh, exacerbating it while uh, also making it uh, you know, making it sound like that's the solution. It's absolutely crazy. And I was wondering, Connor, can, can you kind of explain how climate crisis and the economy are connected and, and how the system works in that sense? Yeah, I mean, we're seeing how they're connected in a really big way, I think, at the moment, um, because obviously we're already seeing this kind of rise in the cost of living. I think most people are feeling that at the moment. And food, of course, is a big part of that, uh, with agriculture being one of the parts of, the, of our economy globally that's most susceptible to changes in temperatures. So, uh, for instance, uh, some of the recent data from the EU has uh, kind of alarmingly highlighted that things like uh, maize, but also sunflowers, obviously very important for cooking oil and these sorts of things, have had their yields fall this year by about 8%. Um, and there's already shortages of, uh, you know, many of these kinds of products uh, because of like the war in Ukraine, for instance, um, which has already driven up prices. But with a lower yield, obviously, we're faced now with the risk of these prices going up even more. Uh, and I think that that is, is going to be something that we see more and more of. Likewise, uh, soy is up 
by uh, sorry soy production is down by nine percent in the EU um, of course like crop failure is part of that but also fires themselves burning crops and these fires love these kinds of monoculture um, uh, environments where we're where we're growing things on these huge kind of plantations um, but um, you know these these issues are going to add pressure on all of these other things that we're facing in terms of inflation in terms of shortages and i think you know when we when we say that the you know the climate crisis is uh is a is a real kind of thing it's not an abstract distant kind of thing anymore um you know there's no easier way to see that than in the economy right now in many ways because that is one of the you know the key things that's affecting our lives right now it's not just when our homes are being set on fire you know it's also when uh climate change is you know beyond beyond that also driving up our day-to-day -day food uh to unaffordable prices for instance uh and i think that you know this is the music of the future really at least over this next period yeah, and you know, I think it's it's very clear that the system is not just exacerbating these problems, it also doesn't have any solutions to it because of all these, these things that you mentioned. And, you know, in the last big kind of climate conference uh, uh, of the UN, like at the COP26, which happened less than a year ago in November last year, uh, there were so many promises. Um, and all of these promises in the first place were, ne were not enough to curb... Uh, on the on the kind of like level that we need to curb if we want to act, actually fight against climate change, but even the tiny like like the the, the, the tiny uh, crumbs of promises that we actually got are probably not going to happen because they require some level of international cooperation, which is just not going to happen under this current you know crisis on an international level and we're seeing more and more kind of like about these blocks created and we talked a lot about uh the new cold war in previous episodes as well which uh you should uh, check out as well um but we're seeing that and then obviously the war in ukraine is intensifying all of that so what 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 do you think is going to happen with the, this kind of polarization and and in the context of climate change this this new Cold War situation, the inter-imperialist tensions that we're kind of seeing, this is all, um, you know, it's 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 something that's inevitable. It's inherent to this system. Um, and uh, I mean, we've already just talked about the the unplanned kind of nature of capitalism. That's the case on a national level. It's even more the case between other countries on a whole world scale. And then added on top of that is the fact that these countries are all competing against each other anyway. Um, because that's the way this system works. But, I mean, we're seeing this reflected in so many ways at the moment. And I think these, you know, these tensions, especially between the US and NATO with China and Russia, for instance, is uh, is probably making it even clearer for a lot of people than it was even before. Uh, I mean, for instance, you know, Biden's new um, inflation reduction bill uh, has, uh, you know, all of these things about, for instance, you know, we're going to incentivize production of electric vehicle batteries in the US. That's not because they're trying to, you know, really take decisive measures to uh, to move away from like fossil fuels and, and polluting cars. And uh, I mean, you know, there's a whole other discussion to be had about whether that is the answer to uh, to the problems with the climate anyway. But it's not even dealing with these questions. It's it's actually about undercutting China. 
uh, more than anything else, and uh, not not having more of these things, but just having them made in in the US. Um, but we're seeing, you know, this this situation happening all around the world where nations are lining up, they're investing in their military spending. NATO's just joined, um, uh, sorry, Sweden's just joined NATO, for instance. Um, obviously, Russia's pouring resources into uh, uh, their invasion in the in in Ukraine, um, and uh, you're also seeing the same being done by the US, the UK, and so on on the other side of that war. China is squaring up around Taiwan and the and the South uh, China Sea, and as a result, just around the world, military spending is is soaring. It's skyrocketing. Military spending internationally was two thousand one hundred and thirteen billion dollars last year. Um, but imagine if, for instance, that had been used on on climate targets. Uh, obviously, I think we shouldn't trust capitalism to really invest that money uh, efficiently and in the ways that it would need to be. But uh, I think it goes to show where the system's priorities are. Um, at the same time, I've mentioned. Um, uh, just earlier as well, um, we're seeing, for instance, um, uh, this kind of scramble for oil uh, as as part of this new Cold War. Oil supplies are being cut off, for instance, from Russia towards the uh, towards the EU. Um, so people are, you know, uh, digging deep for uh, for like oil deposits here in the UK. I mean, you've mentioned uh, Liz Truss. Uh, uh, talking about uh, you know going ahead with fracking, but even looking at like the North Sea oil supplies, there's this huge drive to uh, to you know get get basically the dregs of the North Sea oil. Like it's a mostly depleted oil reserve. This isn't like a long term solution. It's not um, you know an efficient investment or anything like this. And obviously, it's not good for the planet. But this is. The way the system works, the short-sightedness of it, the nationalism of it is just all on display at the moment. Um, you know, on the one hand, what what we should be doing is looking at, you know, if we need uh, more energy, if we've got an energy crisis, let's build green energy. Let's take the steps that are needed to to make that a reality, whether that's uh, linking up internationally to maximise the efficiency of solar panels or anything like this. Th th these are just not the questions that the ruling class in any country is concerned with. It's, uh, you know, how can we uh, reinforce our own fossil fuel supply? There's no uh, there's no real long term planning or anything. Connor, you gave just so many examples of how, you know, capitalism is really uh, the main driver of this problem of climate change. You know, the military, uh, you talked about how much money, uh, you know, we've spent on the military uh, over the past few years. And the military is a huge contributor, um, you know, to CO2 emissions, etc. And, you know, these solutions, these green solutions that are being put forward, um, you know, Megan mentioned electric cars, which don't just, you know, run off oxygen um, and they need, you know, the, the lithium batteries and the cobalt for the uh, the chips and all of this stuff, you know, uh, needs to be extracted from the earth through mining, which also is not good for the environment. So these are just um, very short term solutions, individualized solutions, um, as opposed to systematic change. But Megan, I want to focus in a little bit on, um, you know, some of the promises that Joe Biden made at the COP26. Um, you know, he's been 
pretty busy these past few weeks. Today, um, you know, he uh, is supposed to give $10,000 of, of student debt relief, you know, really trying to uh, get those millennial and Gen Z votes um, after the Democratic Party, you know, just lost the right to abortion across the U.S. Um, but, you know, a few weeks uh, prior, he also passed one of the largest climate bills in U.S. history, which we must acknowledge is a step forward. But I was wondering if you could focus in on, you know, what is in that bill and what are the shortcomings of that bill? Because there are a lot. Yeah. How much time do I have to talk about this? Yeah, it's made me so mad. I mean, yes, I don't want to ignore the positives. There are provisions that would let Medicare directly negotiate drug prices. A large portion of the bill spending is on subsidies for green energy initiatives, electric vehicle production, but it, I agree with the point that you just made, Toya, around resources. Um, and so yeah, there's gonna be a reduction of carbon emissions, but I'm just wondering like, who believes that a bill co-written by someone whose family owns a coal company is gonna be a good climate bill? Um, Senator Joe Manchin co-wrote this bill, and yeah, he he's uh, a coal baron is basically what he is. So in this same bill with some of those positive provisions, there's also a lifeline being thrown to the fossil fuel industry. Um, that's gonna do damage for at least the next 10 years. We have new drilling leases on lands in the Gulf of Mexico and Alaska. We're speeding up permitting for energy product, um, projects, and that includes fossil fuel energy products um, or projects. We have fee and penalty exemptions for oil and gas companies that like do the bare minimum, like you get an exemption on this fee if you clean up a spill that you made. Like I, mm, yeah. So, and the, I think icing on the cake is that Joe Manchin was able to slip in um, a, a provision that says the Biden administration has to support a new natural gas pipeline that would go through um, Manchin's state of West Virginia and he and his fossil fuel friends would really profit off of that. So it is basically a green capitalism bill. It provides all these opportunities for corporations to do the right thing, but as we know and how capitalism works is it's only if, if they want to and how many of those corporations are going to want to. Um, there's also no mention of like, again, what is America's homeless population supposed to do when summers are getting hotter? Um, there's, I think a couple like tax credit opportunities for public transportation agencies, but there's nothing about building free public transit. There's nothing about improving existing public transit. Toya, I know you in Boston, the T could use some upgrades, but like who's paying for all of that? We should, working people should not have to. And then there's absolutely no relief, no tax credit for, uh, you know, any bus riders or people that take the train, but there will be plenty of tax breaks for people that can afford a Tesla or solar panels. Um, and then similar to what um, Connor was saying as part of the new Cold War, there's all these incentives for building in America for parts made, but if global warming is a global issue and we're focused on, yeah, a new Cold War, 
that's not really going to serve our fight in this climate crisis. So um, I think it's, it, it is a bill that really falls short. And now after a week of, I think people reading through, it's like a 755 page piece of legislation. We're now seeing more environmental justice advocates and advocates for low income and um, minority communities coming out saying that they feel left behind um, and forgotten about. Megan, you mentioned the tea and the orange line is what comes to my house. It caught on fire, literally, like three times this summer. A woman had to jump out of the window off a bridge into a river to save herself. Um, It's insane. And now they decided that they're going to shut the tea down for a whole month. They're just shutting it down. Um, And, you know, the second most used uh, line in the city. And I just had to go on that rant. I know I'm the only one in Boston, but it just shows how bad, um, you know, our infrastructure needs to be updated. Um, It just shows how bad this crisis is for working people. Um, And, you know, you mentioned this ridiculously long uh, legislation that now, you know, people have had time to actually sift through, you know, and another group of people who are, uh, you know, their community is going to be destroyed by this is um, the Native community. You know, these pipelines that they're talking about building, they go right through um, Native lands and completely destroy the drinking water. Um, But while Obama was president, There was actually a lot of fight back in the Native community from um, when they were fighting, what was that pipeline, Megan? The Keystone XL. Remember that? There was a huge fight back from the Native community. Um, But, you know, people in the U.S., Native people in the U.S., workers in the U.S., we environmental activists, we didn't see a real connection of this this movement uh, to build a strong fight back, um, to fight back against capitalism and to save the environment. So I wanna ask you both, first you Connor, what do you think the environmental movement needs to really join up, uh, you know, in environmental activists, um, you know, poor people, black and brown people, workers, um, who all want to take action, who all have a stake in fighting back against capitalism. What do you, what do you think the movement needs? Yeah, well, I think um, this this situation that we're living through at the moment is an important opportunity to really kind of discuss and build on some of the lessons of the climate movement over the last few years. Obviously, there's not been that much uh, climate action taking place. But what we are seeing right now is a big wave. You know, I talked about it right at the start. Uh, I'm sure everybody's got their own stories to tell of it, of of workers coming into struggle, of organising, whether that's previously unorganised sectors of workers or those that are already organised now taking action over the cost of living crisis and these sorts of things. I think the questions that we've already started discussing in the climate movement, how do we link up, for instance, with the wider working class? What role do trade unions have? in this movement. These are ones that now suddenly become way more concrete. Uh, One of the things that I think has been really positive here in the UK is uh, uh, Just Stop Oil, which is like a climate campaign, has visited some of the RMT uh, rail workers picket lines, for instance, and uh, and been able to build some uh, some links uh, there, which has been one of the challenges uh, there. And I think 
you know, in these sort of circumstances, it's not just a case of like telling people in trade unions why they need to care about the climate, but actually it, it becomes the case that we're in the same struggle, especially when, you know, climate activists, whether you're students, whether you're workers yourselves, you know, we're, we're all uh, facing these same things. We're potentially organising our own strikes. And so, you know, the idea of integrating what's going on around things like the cost of living, which does tie into the climate, um, but integrating this um, with with the demands that we have around the climate, I think it's going to be an important opportunity to take things a step forward. So, you know, for instance, talking about the railways, um, well, we need to nationalise these things, not just to guarantee the terms and conditions of the railway workers, but to actually start investing in a decent, um, a, a decent uh, kind of coordinated uh, public transport system. Uh, likewise, with um, you know, with with many other industries as well. I think the energy industry at the moment is just one of the most obvious examples where uh, you know, again, this is something that's already come up a little bit in this discussion. Um, but the you know the the short sightedness of these energy companies, but also just the profiteering of them, the huge profits they're making exploiting this energy crisis. Well, that you know that. Uh, needs to be tackled, but so does the issue of actually providing clean energy um, and defending jobs as part of that as well. Uh, so nationalisation has to be part of these discussions. And these are things that, uh, you know, on many layers, uh, elements of young people, of working class people, uh, you know, will be able to uh, to struggle uh, together for. And I think that that is, uh, you know, the kind of direction things are moving. We've seen certain campaigns already being launched here in uh, here in Britain. We've been discussing a lot about this new initiative uh, called Enough is Enough, where, uh, you know, there's uh, several trade unions and trade union leaders and other organisations like this now getting together and talking about how do we, uh, you know, form community groups? How do we uh, build solidarity work between the different trade unions well climate you know the climate struggle uh can be part of this as well um and uh i think that you know there's actually a lot of potential if that can be done yeah you know something we talk when we're talking about the climate a lot of times you know we actually are talking about students leaving leading the climate movement but it seems like since the pandemic you know students been taking out of school it almost took the wind um out of that and hopefully uh, we see that pick back up now that, you know, COVID is over. I say that in air quotes because we all know it's not over, but everyone's pretending like it is. Um, but Megan, I'm curious what your take is. What do you think the environmental movement needs um, to really uh, gain some steam? Yeah, there was a story yesterday that was pretty up upsetting. I mean, yeah, all stories I'm hearing lately have been upsetting, it feels like. But uh, Ford Motors was cutting, I think, thousands of jobs because of their electric vehicle production, which one, doesn't make sense to me, but two, is very clearly the company Ford trying to sow division between their workers who they just laid off and the environmental movement. We shouldn't let any company, corporation, whatever, be pitting workers in polluting industries against the environmental justice movement, I think, at all. Um, a lot of people that are in those industries as you know, rank and file union members or just workers want to provide for their families and like they just need a job. We need to make strong demands of like a Green New Deal here in the US. I don't think those forward workers would have been laid off if they had a jobs program that would retrain them to be able to build electric vehicles or just retrain them in the renewables industry in general. 
what Connor said around nationalization. I think we need to bring the fossil fuel industry into public ownership and then rebuild it into green energy. Um, I also just think all of these jobs should be well-paid union jobs and we need to push for more union victories like the one we saw with Amazon in New York. If all of Amazon was unionized, I think the effect that that would have on the logistics industry and what that would mean for us fighting for environmental justice and fighting climate change would be massive. And then infra infrastructure projects, I mean, we're yeah, we're going to keep having these extreme weather events. How can we prepare our communities and keep them safe during climate emergencies and natural disasters? Um, I think what that looks like is building more public housing as well. Uh, people need homes. And then I think strengthening our healthcare systems. Like you were saying earlier, some of these struggles don't seem related, but if we know that climate is going to affect the health and the lives of people everywhere, we need to have a healthcare system worldwide that is able to take care of people when these emergencies or natural disasters happen. And then I think our job and why we're all here talking from around the globe is we do need to be calling for internationalism. This is a global crisis and I think we need to match its scale with a movement that is global as well. It's going to take working people uniting internationally to really success dismantle capitalism um, successfully. And so I think it is the work of socialists uh, and just working people to find these connections and see where they can link up. We're not all separate from each other. Um, we're not, uh, we're, we're just trying to take care of um, I the world at this point. And so it's like, how can, how can we make how can we make these connections um, and put these struggles into one struggle really for um, working class uh, internationalism? Yeah. Yeah, I think this is really important. I think I wanna kind of connect it a little bit to what we're doing because we started talking a little bit about uh, what we're aiming for. And I think that it's really important to also stress that we have been kind of doing this work as well in the International Socialist Alternative all around the globe, really. Um, we've like, you know, from Brazil to Sweden, we've been involved in major kind of uh, uh, climate movements, uh, whether it's uh, for native rights or, uh, you know, connecting uh, the, 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 the climate struggle to exactly like you said, industrial struggles. Um, uh, we've been doing some amazing work all across the world, uh, which you can also read about on our, uh, uh, on our website. So make sure to check it out. Uh, but thank you so much, Connor and Megan. This has been really interesting and really good to see. And I do wanna kind of finish this part of the discussion by kind of inviting everyone who's watching who's watching today, if you agreed with what Connor and Megan have said, if you agreed with this discussion, and if you are ready for action, then please send us your details, get involved with us. We have uh, branches all around the globe in over 30 countries on every continent. Um, and so uh, there's definitely gonna be a place for you to work. And uh, like both Connor and Megan said, we need an international struggle and an international movement to defeat these issues uh, and to defeat capitalism and the system that's uh, making everything worse, uh, but whether it's climate or otherwise. So thank you so much and hopefully you'll join us. Wow, thank you so much to our speakers today. This was so interesting. But now for our favorite part of every week, which is the shout of the week. So Toya, what are we shouting out this week? 
This week, we are shouting out the work that Socialist Alternative and our council member, Shama Sawant, has been able to do in Seattle by making it a sanctuary city um, to protect people who have sought out abortion. So, you know, as we've talked about um, today and on our show, um, you know, access to abortion in the U.S. has been cut uh, by many states and um, you know, people are facing criminal prosecution for, you know, getting abortions. And so um, in Seattle, we were able to um, build a fight back um, to make sure that people who do seek out an abortion in places where it is not legal um, and go to Seattle, they cannot be uh, prosecuted or looked for by law enforcement, uh, which is, you know, insane to say that we have to actually create uh, these sort of measures to protect people from making decisions about their body. But this is um, huge, and a lot of cities are attempting to follow in the footsteps of Shama Sawant and Social Alternatives. So it's so exciting that we were able to get that through. It's so huge as well. And like it's, it's amazing to see, kind of like you said, the cascading effect of it. And it kind of shows the importance of having kind of working class representation in our institutions and like kind of you know the fact that we can do things from the ground from these movements and actually also make real changes that would actually affect women across the us is is quite incredible and also uh i don't know if people know but next month is is going to be the international day for safe abortion uh, which we're definitely gonna have an episode about so make sure that you're following us and staying tuned uh, with us uh, but this is all for today so hopefully see you soon uh, at the next episode this is world to win every sunday we broadcast with speakers from across the globe bringing you the latest news and analysis on the fast-moving global events from a socialist perspective subscribe to the international socialist alternatives youtube page and click the bell to get notified when we go live for a new episode like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram because there's a lot to do and we have a world to win. When they fight! When they fight! When they fight! Solidarity!